0: welcome back to your story the only podcast where our guests will tell their story with the help of only 12 questions and ideally under 30 minutes this week we are joined by matt ward matt does a lot of things he's a speaker he's the author of two books more word of mouth referrals lifelong customers and raving fans as well as the high five effect how to do business with people who bring you joy which was released last october he's also the host of the mass business podcast Uh, that's some of the stuff matt does let's welcome matt in here matt glad to have you Thanks for
1: having me mike i appreciate it it's gonna be a lot of fun
0: thanks Uh, so what did i leave out of that what uh what do you usually tell people that you do when they ask you
1: i help service-based businesses get more word of mouth referrals and why is that important well just about everybody usually in a room of 100 people when i ask the question how many of you get the majority of your business through referrals 99 or 100 people will raise their hand. But the problem is when I ask the follow-up question, which is how many of you have a very defined referral plan in place, a process to get more referrals? Very few, maybe one or two will actually raise their hand. So most people are just gambling on those referrals. They think they get them from clients and, and in many cases they're not. And that's just a, a confusion on their part because they're not tracking it and they're not focused on the right people. So, do you feel that the difference in the 99 to the one percent is that the
0: 99 feels that they're getting their referrals, or that they are doing it without a system, or that they are just uh, they don't want to be the one person who doesn't put their hand up? What do you think the the issue there is?
1: I think that um, that that when it comes to the 99 percent, um, that people do firmly believe that the majority of their clients are coming from referrals. They just don't think that they can have a defined plan to generate more referrals and most people want more referrals or are more than willing to take more referrals but don't really have a way to get them they just assume that referrals just come to them when the clients are ready to send them or they'll try and ask which never works um so i i think that's the bigger problem is they just don't sit down and think about how they could strategize and get more referrals and there there is uh, a series of things that people can do to actually get more referrals if they actually spend some time thinking about it and building the right relationships
0: and that makes a lot of sense and one thing i definitely want to bring up today i have learned we could probably spill, fill multiple episodes of things i've learned from reading your books hearing you talk and watching your videos but one thing that really stuck out to me is the idea of a referral partner that's somebody who may never do business with you but somebody who in their business, in their life, or both, does crosses paths with a lot of people who may do business with you. So having um, A, establish that relationship, and B, nurturing it is is very important. So I wanna just kind of put that idea out there and then kind of, if you could just comment on that.
1: Yeah, I think the majority of people look at clients as the people that refer, but clients are rarely in a position to refer. Instead, what we need to do is focus on the partners, the sources of referrals, the people who are in a position to refer on a regular basis and build relationships with them. So, for instance, if we're talking about a realtor as an example, then a mortgage professional would be a great person because somebody goes to them to get pre-qualified. The mortgage professional may never buy a house from the realtor, may never list a house with the realtor. That's usually an understood scenario. But let's take the handyman, for instance. A homeowner calls a handyman in has a punch list, a honeydew list, and all the handyman has to say is, why are you getting all these things done now? What's going on? Oh, I'm getting ready to list my house. Have you picked or chosen a realtor? Oh, no. Oh, okay. You know what? Let me refer you to my person. So building a relationship with a handyman works really well because then also when the Realtor has a client buy a house and needs to have a series of things fixed in that new house that they just bought. They can now refer the handyman. So there's a lot of back and forth that can go on there. And keep in mind that the realtor and the handyman may never have done business themselves together. So it's about identifying who's in the right position to refer and then teaching them how to ask the right questions so that you get referrals. Love it. And and using that example,
0: for somebody who may not have done business together, what's a good way to... I would say educate, but teach somebody or to inform somebody about what you do and how they can communicate it to somebody else. Because some, so a lot of people struggle with that.
1: Yeah, the best way is, is what I refer to as one-to-one calls. So you're educating your partner and it's a process. You can't shove everything into a 30-minute call. You can have coffee with them. You can have lunch with them. And it's just a conversation. And so one of the best things you can do is ask the person you're talking to, hey, give me an example of somebody you helped recently. And when they answer, they're typically, typically going to ask you a similar question. Hey, Mike, what are the, you know, what's a challenge you helped somebody with recently? Oh, well, I helped them with this, that, or the other thing. And so that conversation allows you to begin informing people of what you're doing. Um, It's kind of like the old school, did you know, marketing campaign where you go into a conversation and you're thinking you want to just inform them of one or two things. When you try to shove every service you have into a conversation of 30 minutes, it becomes just mud and nobody can make sense of it. So just keep it really simple and know that you can build this relationship over time with multiple interactions. What kind of pushback will you get when you are talking
0: to clients or potential clients about this approach as opposed to just, here's all the things I do. Let me tell as many people who can hear about it. Maybe I'll find somebody who wants to do business today as opposed
1: to investing that time. It's rare that the pushback I get is, is other than, yes, I agree with you, Matt. Most of the times, my clients prospects and people talking to me about referrals completely understand the approach that i take and that i recommend the pushback is more in the execution in that they are so ingrained in their day that they're doing so many different things and they're on the run all the time that they will then default to either not building relationships not investing in the relationships not doing the reach outs that are necessary to keep the process moving and or asking for referrals and, and that's where they fall off the wagon. And so it's my job to kind of keep them on track in that way and kind of keep them driving toward the right, uh, activity.
0: Okay. And who do you find are, are good clients for you? Or where do you see
1: a, a lot of your clients? What, what kind of space do they work in? So it's all service-based business professionals. I, I tend to have a, a bit of a, uh, Niche or target market in the real estate world, primarily with brokers who hire me to help with their team of agents. So they bring me in as a recruitment and retention um, tool uh, and make me available free of charge to all of their agents. So the agents don't have to pay. That's a because typically that's a challenge for part time agents or even lower volume full time agents. Um, and most agents necessarily can't afford me in a one-to-one environment. And so brokers will bring me in. Um, web designers and developers. I have a background having run a uh, design agency for 16 years and selling that for seven figures. So a lot of web designers, graphic designers, SEO, those type of folks will gravitate to me because they've seen what I've done in that industry and, and they like that. So those are the two primary um, target markets that I work within um and then from a speaking perspective it's different in covid now but uh, almost all the speaking i do is is conference based so um sometimes it's for boards of realtors i have a, a couple programs that i do for boards of realtors um but most of the stuff i do is conference based so i'll go to a conference i'll speak about referrals or um, uh, building relationships and things like that and and sometimes that includes networking and 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 linkedin because that's all subset of what it takes to produce relationships and uh, the conference market is kind of slow right now because of covid there's not a lot of that in-person stuff happening so um that'll come back in the next few years in 2019 i did 35 uh speaking gigs all wow. across the country yeah
0: that's that's a busy year yeah. I would like to rewind to a couple of things that you said that I don't want to lose. The first being uh, the benefit or the almost necessity of having a system, a process in place to build your network, to uh, cultivate the relationship with the referrals. Um, those are almost processing systems, sometimes dirty words to people in service-based business because they are not generally direct money-making activities. How, how do you... Um, I guess position that conversation in a way that makes sense to somebody whose time is very valuable and they calculate on an hour on a day, what they, what they need to bring in for revenue.
1: I think, I think you need a reset because oftentimes they're calculating what they need to bring in from a revenue standpoint, but they're doing it all wrong anyway. Most people think that they need a thousand clients and that's not the reality. The reality is many service-based businesses, if they're solopreneurs, need between 20 and 50 clients, maybe a hundred, all depending on who, what they do and who they're working with. Um, An example, uh, one of my clients is a video production company. They uh, film and edit and produce short-based videos for businesses, three to five minutes long. But these are sort of movie and story-like videos, really high quality really high end, they're looking at a lower price point model as well so that they can get the best of both worlds and get referrals from different sources. So for instance, the big, the bigger expensive stuff is a more a higher end, larger company, but their small businesses can't afford, you know, say $5,000 or more on a video. So they're looking at a price point that's closer to $500 a month as an example. Well, w- when you start looking at that. Did you know that you can make, you know, if if you were charging, say, for instance, $100 a month to a client, uh, $100 a week to a client for the service that you provide, to make $100,000, you only need 19 clients. You need 19 clients that you're billing $400 a month that produces $100,000 a year. Most people don't do that math. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, can you get 20 clients, 19, 20 clients? Of course you can. Is it going to take you some time? Yes. Will you have to ramp it up? Yes. But once you know how many clients you need, then you, you can start to understand who can refer you those clients. So an example in his case was who needs videos done every week. People like me that produce content thought leaders like us, like you and me. So Will Mike Solitro pay $100 a week? I don't know. But if I had a conversation with Mike, say, hey, Mike, my guy's doing this for me. This is what he's charging me. You know, maybe you should have a conversation with him. He might close 30% of that business. That's a good referral for him because I'm teeing it up and I'm asking the right questions. Hey, Mike, are you happy with, you know, editing your videos? How, How many hours are you spending on your videos? So I'll get the education from the video guy And I'll know what to talk about in a conversation with you, especially from my perspective, because I produce videos every single week and people ask me all the time, how do you do it? How do you produce so much video? Well, I don't do it all. I have a team of people. And so people are like, wait, wait, what? You have a team? Yeah, because the most important thing to me is freedom. I don't want to sit behind a computer and edit a video. Why do I need to do that? I just need to be the visionary on that. And so when you think, start to think about that, you, you really start to understand that it doesn't always have to be about the money as the number. Instead, the number should be the number of contacts you're reaching out to on a regular basis to build relationships with. And that ultimately turns into money. If you chase the money, people run. We've seen it all the time on LinkedIn. People chase the money all the time. They try to sell stuff all the time on LinkedIn. People cold call us. We hate that, Mike. We as consumers, as, as humans, love to buy, but we absolutely despise being sold to. So if you're chasing the top revenue number from a sales standpoint, you're going to push people away. And instead, if you if you look at providing value and getting partners and educating them and asking the right questions, they're going to produce referrals for you on a regular basis, and that's going to be beneficial.
0: That's a great answer, starting with the reset to change kind of how everything is balanced or what the equation in your head is and just using the examples that you gave to how you can create a, a business using a different formula I think that's that's really helpful to some because if you start off on the wrong with the wrong numbers you're it's going to affect every part of your business uh, up, up until you mentioned there that the providing value and that the most people don't want to be sold to directly they you know they love buying but you know get get away from cold messaging so that's it's uh, really an excellent an excellent illustration of how you do that. Um, kind of building off of that, um, I wanted to ask you with the content creation, with the providing value. Do you see relationships that sometimes turn one way? Of I've made a relationship with somebody, and they they keep asking me for things or taking. I don't want to say taking advantage, but it, it doesn't. If I'm providing more than. Uh, was bargained for here more than than the situation calls for. Have you seen that, and how do you advise your clients to handle something like that?
1: This is a brutal situation because one of the best books ever read was Never Eat Alone by Keith Ferrazzi. What I took away from that was to give without the expectation of getting anything in return. Now, are are, are we at times going to think, but wait, when's my turn? Absolutely. I even think like that now. The key is not to act on it. The key is not to turn that around and and have a conversation about when's my turn. The idea here is not to keep score. That we give, even though they're asking, we're helping them because we care. And when we do that, it eventually shows. Now, yes, there are always people in this world that will take, 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 and the reciprocity thing won't kick in. But you know what? You and I both know that doing the right thing always pays off in the end it just might pay off with someone else and that's okay if it gets toxic then you got to separate and start to to create space in between there if you start to create animosity internal animosity for this person or something then yeah you want to separate from that um relationship so that you can get a gap and see if you can reset it um sometimes referral relationships are one way in the web world for instance when i had the agency it was it was more one-sided that we would receive referrals from it professionals and companies like computer people than we could give them so in that industry it was very common that we paid a referral fee it's not acceptable to pay referral fees in a lot or every industry, real estate's one example. There's very strict rules around it. Um, Pharma and and government and, and insurance, these are all things that you can't do this in. But there are many industries that you can do it in. And so it's about finding ways to appreciate other people specifically so that they understand and feel appreciated when the referral came in. If you can't pay a fee, then a handwritten card. You should always do a handwritten thank you card to ensure that people are really feeling what you feel. You got to go from the inbox to the mailbox.
0: I love that. And that kind of ties in nicely to what I want to talk to you, talk about next is that's the well not the central point of both of your books, but something that comes up often is understanding who you do business with and getting to the point in your business where you can work with the people you want to work with, serve the client base that you best service and that you want to service. Uh, So starting with writing books, what was that process like? How did you know you wanted to do that? And what was actually getting pen to paper like?
1: I didn't know I wanted to do it. In fact, when I got in the middle of it, I probably didn't want to do it (laughs) because it's (laughs) a lot of work and it's a lot of expense. When you self-publish a book, which is what the majority of people are doing in the business world, very few percentage-wide, you know, single-digit percentages of authors are Um, published with a, with a firm. And when you go with a publishing company, you lose a lot of control. So self-publishing is very, very common, but it's very expensive. It's a writing process. You have to write every day or at least every week. Um, You need to collaborate with other people. You need to interview people. In in the newest book I have, the high five effect, I interviewed 50 small business owners. And so then I had to take those video interviews from zoom and find quotes and put them in different chapters and make it all work. Um, you need a developmental editor. You need an editor to look at the proofreading side of things. Um, there's multiple you know, uh, rounds for that. You need a cover designer. You need a layout. And I did, I did the newest book in paperback, ebook, and hardcover. So the hardcover needed a jacket, which is a different thing than a paperback. And so there's more expense to that. Um, then you got to buy the books up front. You know, I bought a thousand books. What am I going to do with a thousand books, Mike? I have a lot of books. (laughs) And they work really well to, like, hold up. Like, if I need to change a tire, you know, I can kind of crank (laughs) me. That's a good second second use. (laughs) Yeah. So um, it's a process, but it's incredibly rewarding. Once you get the preview testimonials that come in, the advanced praise. I got um, my newest book was endorsed by Mike McAllowitz, who's a, a... a a very popular small business author who profit first. And so, you know, those wins were, were super amazing for me as as a small business owner, a validation tool that the content I had was going forward and, and that, you know, writing the books that it was a three-year gap between books and uh, maybe it'll be a three-year gap, you know, between now and the next book, you know, I'm sure there's another one coming out. I just don't know when.
0: 3 years is that's that's a pretty quick turnaround I would think. I'm sure there's some authors that do It, it takes about 18 time. months, Mike, to write the book and do all the work. I can't as you describe it, I I can't imagine what it looks like either the daily, weekly or, or more frequent just sitting down writing it. Uh, you mentioned interviewing 50 small businesses. What was what was a kind of a main takeaway or something
1: that you heard didn't expect to or, or what did you reaffirm from those conversations? The biggest takeaway from all those conversations, the most common thread amongst all of them was that they take on clients because they need the money, even though they see the red flags, that they shouldn't be doing business with this client, that they know it's going to end in disaster, it's not going to work out well, but they need the money, so they take on the client.
0: Uh, that's, that's interesting that it came up so often, because I, I think you're right, that that's, that's something that we can all admit to, and then once those red flags become even or come to fruition it's say well i should have i should yeah. have stopped this up front and one of the
1: things i wrote about in the book was once you get to this level of security mode which i wrote about in the book is that 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 comes when you have a predictable amount of revenue every single month so whether you have a, a recurring revenue program or you just have enough business that you're comfortable with how much income is coming in and it's coming in every month for the past six months. Now you can start to take risk and push away clients and say no, because prior to that it's survival mode. You literally are trying to survive, pay your bills, eat, feed your family, pay your rent, et cetera. And that's the scenario that I think most people are, are stuck with. the The reason I wrote the book, was because I felt that most small business owners left the corporate world because they wanted three things, more money, more time, and more freedom. And they get none of those in the first five years. And I experienced that exactly. And now I don't really care about the money. I care about the freedom, being flexible with my life and um, not working every day or at least having a choice to work every day. Those are decisions I make every day. So.
0: Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's a, c- a common thing that you see when people make the transition from corporate. And the other thing besides the time, the freedom, and the money is that I don't want to work with others. And that's a faulty belief because, as I found, I think most of the clients I work with will tell me that I actually work with more people than I did. And I have more relationships. I have more balls to juggle. So if you're thinking that leaving corporate to kind of be on your own, some of the, some of the things, yes, but you're still very much dependent on others, whether it's in your own business, bringing in new business. Uh, One last uh, question that you brought up when you sold your uh, design agency, working with a lot of realtors, uh, I would think that a good number hope to get to a point where they can remove themselves from the business and ideally sell their business. How did that experience kind of help you or
1: to have that dialogue with them? I mean, it was, it, it, It was just amazing for me to be able to exit. And and now now I talk to people about the same things because they see what I did. And it's just super exciting. And it was a reward. A lot of people asked me if I went through a period of time after selling that I actually, like, regretted it. And I didn't um, because I built the business originally to sell it. I knew early on that that was going to be my exit strategy. And I was working toward that all the time. Um, and so mentally I was already prepared for it. Um, so it wasn't a big problem. And I, and I the decisions I've made, i made, I haven't regretted them at all. Who I sold it to and the structure in which I sold it and the transition and all of that, it's all worked out really, really well. I can't say it's like that for everybody, but it's worked out well for me.
0: Very nice. And switching uh, gears quickly, or actually I'll ask you first, you host the Mass Business Podcast. Who do you talk to and who's your audience for that show?
1: Yeah, so it's Massachusetts-based businesses, and we talk about the growth of a business and networking, um, sales, marketing, things like that. It's less about their story and more about how they grew their business. And uh, that's who the guests are, and then the the audience are small business owners of all types. I mean, it's awesome if they're in Massachusetts, but you know, they can be anywhere in the U S who want to grow a business and want to get a tidbit of information from uh, one of the guests that was on the, on the podcast. Very nice. And switching
0: gear to some quick hitting questions. What is, we've learned a lot about what you do professionally, how you've built your businesses, sold your business. What do you do for fun or what do you do to, uh, outside of business?
1: yeah so uh i'm a member of the freedom boat club which allows me to take boats out of the club marinas anywhere in the country so i like to do that uh awesome. all year long and i'm a big avid atv and side-by-side enthusiast so i'd love to ride my atv throughout the country in different places i've been to the grand canyon and idaho and new england uh new hampshire and maine and florida and west virginia uh so it's it's a passion of mine i've been doing it for uh, probably 15, 20 years, and I, I love it. It's it's just a lot of fun, and I like to travel. You know, I like to go cruises and just three day weekends. I've been to Vegas like 28 times. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah.
0: So when you travel with, or when you go on the ATV trips, are you bringing the ATV? How do you transport it?
1: Yeah, trailer it. Yeah. Most of the time we trailer it. Um and to West Virginia and New England, New Hampshire, Maine. It's all trailered. To Idaho, it was trailered. A friend drove it out. Wow. And I flew and got an R V and met him up in, in uh in Idaho. Uh, when we went to the Grand Canyon in September of 2021, there were nine of us that went. And that trip actually included the side-by-sides. So we went to Vegas. They picked us up there. They took us to Utah. And then from there, we drove to the um, Grand Canyon. And we slept 10 feet from the North Rim. And uh, there you go. It, was, it was a digital detox trip too, Mike. So they took our phones. So we didn't have our phones for four days. What was that like? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. At what, at
0: what point did it become amazing? Because I'm sure at first you were you were anxious. No, about I doing.
1: mean, at, at first I don't think you feel like you need it. Once you get in the middle of the woods, you're not gonna have much cell phone signal anyway, and certainly not in the Grand Canyon. You're sleeping in a tent, uh, there's no running water. Uh, yes, they have a chef. Uh, you don't keep your phone for photos or videos. They bring a videographer and a photographer. So um, that's part of the package. Um, it's really just about getting time to stand still and think about who you are and what life is about. That sounds lovely. What, uh, with uh, 28
0: trips to Vegas, what, uh, what advice would you give to somebody who has not been that many times
1: or something that you've learned that uh, those of us have only been a handful of times don't know? See a show, see a concert, visit only one restaurant on the Strip each time you go because it's overpriced. Go off the Strip to eat and see all the museums, the Neon Museum, the Mob Museum, the Pinball uh, Hall of Fame Museum thing. Um, go, go do everything, go to the Hoover Dam. There's so much to do that's not on the Strip. That's where the nuggets are for sure. Um, you know, yes, you can do touristy things. Go to downtown Las Vegas, which is down at the end of the Strip go down there during the day and look at all the graffiti art all over the walls. Great, great time. Um, yeah, there's a lot to do out in Las Vegas. You just have to be willing to get off the strip to do it. Um, but I've seen shows up like absinthe and comedy shows and, uh, Celine Dion. And, um, we flew out there for one night in 2019 Flew out Saturday, saw a concert, flew back Sunday. The concert was Holland Oats. Okay. And they opened so, with Maneater, right? Of course they So, are. like, great stuff like that. I mean, that's living. That's that's being flexible. And and that trip didn't cost a ton of money to do. You know, flights to Las Vegas are rather inexpensive. You need a hotel for about five hours. You could even get away without the hotel, I suppose.
0: So Wrapping up here, what, where do you recommend people stay and what's the best show you've seen in Vegas?
1: Oh, so many different places to stay. I'll give you one example. If you don't like, uh, you know, they, they're smoking in the casino. So if you're a non-smoker, that's not always as ideal for you. Um, so there's plenty of places like the Westin is right off the strip. Known for their beds, no casino, no smoking hotel. The Hampton Inn and Suites, same scenario. It's further down on the strip. So those are non-casino hotels that are great to stay at. Um, the Link is a cool place. I stayed there the last time I was there. I stayed at Luxor. I stayed at Excalibur. I stayed at New York, New York. Uh, I stayed at Palazzo. Palazzo was a great place to stay. Um, yeah, I stayed at Red Rock a couple times. I've been there for conferences um, so a lot of options. You can also choose an Airbnb if you're really going to be out there more than three days, four days, something like that. And then what was the next question? Best concert you saw in Vegas? Uh, best concert. Well, or in general, best, best concert you've the, seen. The, 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 the best Cirque du Soleil show was Absinthe. Okay. That was, uh, Absinthe was uh, amazing. That was the best, the best show, yeah. Good answer. And where can our listeners find you, Matt? Yeah, I'm pretty much on all the platforms that Matt Ward Speaks. Um, my website's mattwardspeaks.com and uh, if they want more referrals, they can go to fireupreferrals.com and download two free resources there, get on my email list, get my videos every single week. And uh, just like I like to say at the end of all my videos, Mike, every single week, don't forget to live happy, smile a lot, and high five everyone around you. Nice,
0: Matt. I will post all those. And then just last question for you. What didn't I ask you that I probably should have?
1: Uh, What didn't you ask me that I probably should have? Oh, I grew up in Hershey, Pennsylvania, Chocolate Town, USA. There you go. There
0: you go. Well, Matt, thanks for joining us. Uh, We'll have all his information in the show notes and uh, your story is a good one. So thank you for sharing with us today, Matt. Thanks, Mike. You got it.